You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Birnbaum, a national security reporter at The Washington Post. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Aaron David Miller, a veteran diplomat, someone who spent uh, decades working on uh, Israel and, and Mideast issues, who's now a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Aaron David Miller, welcome to Washington Post Live. And Michael, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to, to range over a, a bunch of subjects uh, with you this morning. Um, but just to start, why don't you catch us up here on the, the, the state of the uh, Israel-Gaza conflict, the Israel-Hamas conflict. Um, you recently talked about two ticking clocks for the, um, for the Israelis and, and, and for the conflict. One is the uh, Israeli military clock, the, t the ticking down of its uh, military operations, which it has said could run for months. The other clock is the American political clock, which is uh, President Biden's ability to sustain support for the Israelis as the US presidential campaign uh, ramps up and as criticism increases of how he's handling the situation. Um, how, how do those clocks stand and, and, and um, you know, wh where, where are we on, on those pressures? You know, I think the, uh, the issue of time is critically important here. And I think by the end of January, right now, I think those clocks are, I, I guess, more or less uh, out of sync. Uh, the Israeli military is talking about months uh, of intensive uh, division-sized operations in, in Gaza, both in the north and the south. The administration is talking about weeks in terms of getting the Israelis to fundamentally alter their military tactics, particularly in uh, in southern Gaza, where the uh, humanitarian situation is most acute. So you have months on one hand, um, pressed by the Netanyahu government, and, and and again, not to put too fine a point, and I think for this Israeli prime minister, time is also critically important. He needs months more than weeks. He needs some sort of victory in an effort to probably survive what is almost certain to be a political reckoning for him in 2024. And the administration is talking weeks. The president is under enormous pressure. I've rarely seen a more sort of integrated set of pressures on the administration from within the Democrat, uh, Democratic Party, from public opinion, clearly the Arabs, the region, and the international community, all pressing varying degrees and in various ways for the administration to get tougher with the Israelis to crack down and come to the conclusion that only a cessation of hostilities uh, is going to deal with the humanitarian catastrophe uh, caused by Israel's efforts to uh, degrade Hamas, which is co-locating its military assets uh, in and around and below uh, civilian structures and populations. So the clocks, I think, are still out of sync. And I, I believe that by the end of January, we're going to know, frankly, uh, whether or not those two clocks, those two senses of operational versus political time, uh, will be in sync. I'm not predicting, and again, I try not to make predictions, particularly in a, in a conflict moving this quickly with so many uncertainties and so many unknowns, uh, we haven't seen an open breach in the U.S.-Israeli relationship, tensions, yes, divergences on any number of issues. I'm not predicting an open breach. Three months, we're in the third month of this war, and the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government, despite differences, have seemed to manage at least public 
uh, dimension of a fight. And I, I think that that probably will be, it is, I think, the president's default position, but we'll see. We'll see whether the end of January, the Israelis do, in fact, alter their military tactics in a way that would create more time and space for humanitarian surge. And that's what we need. We don't need a dribble. We need a, a humanitarian surge of assistance um, into Gaza. Um, well, in terms of how the, the conflict and the surge of potential surge of, of humanitarian aid uh, un unfolds, I mean, I'm curious what you feel the messages are that we're seeing from Israel right now. The IDF said earlier this week that they're going to pull five brigades from Gaza, uh, but they've also said to prepare for prolonged fighting. Those two things seem uh, potentially contradictory, at least to me. How do you resolve those uh, issues, and where do you think the, the, the military aspect of this is, is heading? I mean, I think, it, I think it's hard. I mean, on the face of it, if you looked at um, Israel's three major publicly articulated goals, one, to eradicate, and I think they've walked that back, uh, degrade Hamas's military infrastructure above and below ground, number one, kill its senior leaders, number two, and redeem the hostages, number three. I think there's growing concern uh, and doubts about whether the Israelis uh, will be able to accomplish those objectives. I think mobilizing 360,000 reservists plus 160,000 active duty military is also having a deleterious impact on the Israeli economy and on morale. So I do think that administration pressing the Israelis to change the operational tempo, the character of their operations in order to create reliable and predictable and sustainable corridors of humanitarian assistance. You cannot, you cannot operate in Gaza the way the Israelis have been operating and expect to deal in, in a serious way with the humanitarian catastrophe that their military operations uh, have caused, uh, largely the innocent, um, uh, Palestinian civilians. You've got to figure out a way to change the operational tempo so that you can create, um, again, reliable and predictable ways of delivering that assistance. And and I think, again, I think the test of that is coming, but uh, in, by the end of January, but, no, but, but, but make no mistake, the Israelis will be operating in Gaza at some level uh, for months to come, which is why it's very, it's a strange term the day after. It's not the day after, it's the day after the day after, and it's probably not even that. It's a series of phases and transitions. 2024 will be the year of Gaza. It will not be the year of pursuing a two-state solution. It will be the year of Gaza. Should Biden get a second term, should he get a second term, that might coincide with the kinds of leadership changes on both the Israeli and Palestinian side, which are critically necessary if in fact we're going to see anything, any more positive pathway uh, emerge out of the dark, deep and dark tunnel that we find ourselves in now. Well, I want to come back to that day after question and the day after the day after question just a little bit. But um, to, to stay on um, the today part uh, just a little while longer. Um, you know, I, I went on the last two uh, trips that Secretary of State Antony Blinken made to the region uh, in in November and um, I suppose uh, very early December. Um, and on both of those trips, he had one big ask that he was bringing to the Israelis. Uh, the first was uh, 
the establishment of a humanitarian pause to uh, allow aid to go in and the release of some hostages. And the second trip we were there, um, it was during the pause and uh, it was to, and his big ask was to ask the Israelis to obey much tighter and more careful uh, uh, protocols of, of combat to reduce uh, harm to civilians in southern Gaza. Um, that's kind of been a mixed bag. I'm curious what you think his next big ask should be the next time he heads to the region, which I think we all think will be pretty soon. Um, you know, what, what, what's the big thing that the United States needs to be asking the Israelis right now? I mean, I think it's an integrated package because each dimension, what the United States wants is related to the other. Clearly, uh, an effort to, to determine whether or not the Israelis will in fact change the operational tempo and character of their military operations in Gaza from division size operations affecting the entire Gaza Strip to brigade size, more uh, intelligence driven focused operations. Uh, number one, to try to get to the issue of the blockage in humanitarian assistance. And that's because largely of the verification process, which is extremely laborious, and the fact that the Israelis have banned delivery of humanitarian aid to commercial uh, enterprises um, only through UN and other NGO uh, agencies. And finally, again, the question of operational military tactics is related to the delivery of humanitarian assistance in large part because you simply cannot surge humanitarian aid into unpredictable or in many cases free fire zones in, in southern Gaza. Hostages may well be on uh, the secretary's mind, but humanitarian pauses for hostages and prisoner releases seems to me not to be the focal point right now, uh, partly uh, because I think uh, as the Israelis tighten the noose on Hamas, I think the hostages become ever more valuable to Yahya Sinwar and those top Hamas leaders who are reserving 129 perhaps hostages, uh, 20 or so that the Israelis have concluded were either murdered in the wake of October 7, they brought it, their bodies brought back into the Gaza Strip or died in captivity, that Hamas is, is holding out for using, trading those hostages for what they really want, which is a cessation of hostilities, an Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, that's not going to happen, and then a uh, asymmetrical release of Palestinian prisoners. I still believe that Yahya Sinwar, um, who is driving this, operation still believes somehow that um, he can win. Um, so the uh, Israeli strike against Salah Haruri uh, yesterday in Beirut, uh, atop Hamas uh, uh, liaison between Iran uh, and Hamas and Hezbollah and Hamas, Hamas has, I think, put a chill on the prospect of uh, hostage or prisoner releases that wasn't going anywhere. Uh, anyway, so that's clearly a concern. And then, of course, Mike, you've got the Michael, you've got the problem of the day after and the day after and the day after that. And that issue is is being complicated by the fact that the prime minister is mixing the national interest of the state of Israel, in my judgment, uh, with his own political interest. And avoiding discussion of that day after avoids conflict with members of his coalition. Uh, and above all, Benjamin Netanyahu needs to remain prime minister of Israel to have any chance at all uh, of escaping. And he's due to uh, testify, by the way, I think in February, 
before three judges, Jerusalem District Court. He's been indicted for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. That trial has been ongoing now for three years. Um, so again, political survival is mixed, sadly, at a critical time uh, in the history of the state of Israel uh, with his, the exigencies of his uh, political survival. And I think that leads, frankly, uh, to bad decision-making, to say the least. Um, is there anything that the Biden administration can do to affect those political aspects? I mean, as, as you said, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, is, is concerned about his political future. I think a lot of people suspect he'll have trouble holding on to office when the war ends. That would give him uh, some amount of uh, encouragement, I think, or uh, you know, reason to extend the war. Um, for from the American perspective, how how you know what's the interface there to to try to reduce those uh, political calculations on his end? Yeah, it's a it's tough because he's actually the prime minister's got two governments. He's got the war cabinet, uh, which was formed courtesy of uh, Benny Gantz in an act of I think selfless patriotism, joining a government at his at his instigation, even though he profoundly mistrust Benjamin Netanyahu. That's one government that uh, Netanyahu has to maintain, he wants to maintain. If, if Gantz should leave the government and tell the nation why he was leaving the government, I think you could, you could begin to see an unraveling um, of the current political constellation in Israel, maybe a formation of a new government or elections. Uh, and then he's got his old government, the most extremist, right-wing, homophobic government in the history of the state of Israel, which, again, he needs to maintain uh, with two extremist ministers, Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bezalel Smotrich, who want to hear nothing about the day after, certainly if the day after uh, involves the return of the Palestinian Authority to Gaza, however, however fanciful that may be at the moment, let alone the prospects of any serious discussion of a two-state solution. So. He's managing, Joe Biden, I have to say, from the beginning, um, has demonstrated a degree of preternatural support for Israel, which is actually quite remarkable. I think it's driven, frankly, by the president's persona. He alone among modern American presidents, the, he has no equal in this, uh, a president who has had decades of experience with the state of Israel and actually considers himself witness his uh, visit, wartime visit to Israel. Uh, there was some debate within the, his administration about whether he should go, and he said he needed to go. I think the quote was to look them in the face, to look them to look them in their eye, in the in their eyes. That that uh, emotional attachment uh, to the state of Israel, to the people of Israel, not to the town government, to the idea of Israel, I think has informed the president's policies and willingness to accommodate rather than to confront. So I think the administration has all kinds of leverage should it be should it choose to use that leverage but i think biden is probably not going to use it because i think on on two or three key issues michael the administration doesn't have any better answers for the israelis than the israelis do number one how do you eradicate hamas in a densely populated area twice the size of the district of columbia with a population density now of anywhere from 30 20 to 30,000 humans per square Per square mile. Uh, how do you do that without inflicting grievous harm on Palestinians? Number two, how do you surge humanitarian assistance into what is essentially a free fire zone? 
And number three, how do you combine the elements of a day after or any sort of transition when in fact that may well depend on what the Israelis can and cannot accomplish uh, with respect to their military operations? I, I don't think the administration has what I would consider compelling answers uh, for the Israelis on any of those questions. And as a consequence, I think Biden has made a judgment and maybe Israeli-Saudi normalization is still in the back of his mind, I suspect it may be, that in fact he's not ready uh, and doesn't think it's productive to get into a public breach or to use leverage. What could he do? He could slow walk or cancel munitions deliveries. He could decide to be more proactive in New York, abstaining or even voting for a UN Security Council resolution, and in, a nu in the nuclear option, he could join the chorus, uh, which the international community is now in harmony, in harmony on, of calling for a cessation of hostilities. I don't think, frankly, and I, I could be wrong, we'll see by the end of January where we stand, that the administration is, is trending to doing any of those things. Yeah, well, on that uh, subject, so clearly Biden is sustaining a lot of political heat, both from his own democratic coalition. He's sustaining a lot of heat from, you know, global pressure. You know, you look at those UN votes and it is a large part of the world's countries lined up against Israel and the United States. Um, on that leverage question, the administration officials I talk to say they feel that you know, they've kind of needed to take this public-private approach, a, a two-track approach, one, the, the public bear hug, uh, the embrace of Israel, and then in private applying pressure, they say that if they had um, broken with Israel or, or been tougher on Israel publicly early on, that they'd have less leverage now, the situation would be even worse. Um, and part of that, they say, um, you know, that the Israelis generally have enough munitions already kind of in, in their storehouses to wage whatever war they're going to wage on Gaza. Um, how fair do you think those, um, that line of reasoning is? I don't want to call them excuses, but, but um, you know, is, is that a, a fair analysis from the U.S. administration on, on their relations with the Israelis? Right. So let's be clear about one thing. And I think, Michael, your question is, re is really central. The Biden administration policy is part of a broader piece. And let's be clear, I work for uh, administrations, both Republican and Democrat, um, Democrat. American presidents do not like to have public fights with Israeli prime ministers. It's messy, it's awkward, it's potentially politically costly. And uh, over time, they probably would argue it's counterproductive. When America presses Israel, see uh, uh, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford and Henry Kissinger in 1975 over the second disengagement agreement, see Bush 41 or James Baker uh, in the run-up to the Madrid Peace Conference over housing loan guarantees. Uh, there have been examples, Reagan suspended the delivery of F-16s when the Israelis extended administrative control to, uh, uh, to the Golan Heights. Uh, and did it again when the Israelis bombed PLO headquarters in Beirut. Eisenhower in 1956 probably exercised the most leverage and the most pressure by threatening to sanction 
and he would have gone ahead and done it had the Israelis not withdrawn from Sinai uh, in the wake of their combined operations with the British and the French. But by and large, pressure on Israel from any administration, not just this one, has been the clear exception rather than the rule. And now, this is not, this is unlike most other instances. You've got a traumatized, you have two traumatized societies, but you have a traumatized Israel in the wake, in the wake of October 7th. And I think the notion of what occurred in those 48 hours has had a profoundly uh, important impact on, on President Biden. The indiscriminate killing, the willful slaughter, the sexual predation and the, and the rapes and the taking of hostages. Uh, many of you have been mistreated and abused and some may have been murdered uh, in Gaza. I think set a new sort of frame, if you will, of, of accommodation among the senior members of the president's um, foreign policy team, beginning with Joe Biden. And while I think the administration came late to the game in expressing uh, the sort of empathy and bonding with the catastrophe that is that has been wrought on the population of Gaza, there's a, a clear sense, and there always has been, that the special relationship with the state of Israel uh, sometimes and it becomes an exclusive relationship. I don't think that's happened here. I think the administration has pressed the Israelis. I don't think there would have been a scintilla, for example, of any humanitarian aid, however, uh, uh, however short that aid has been, given what Gaza needs, without American pressure. I don't think there would have been any hostages released without the United States engaging on this issue. I also think that the Israelis might have preempted uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon during the first week of uh, in the aftermath of October 7 without American pressure. So there has been pressure. There has been pressure, but I think you're quite right. I think the administration believes, whether you call it a bear hug or uh, applying, uh, creating trust and confidence. So at moments when it really counted, the administration would apply pressure. Um, it's worked partly. Uh, I, I don't think the strategy has been by any means a resounding success. Uh, again, I think the end of January, if there is a moment of truth in the U.S.-Israel relationship, and there usually never is, I think that the end of January will give us better a better sense of whether or not the administration um, believes its uh, strategy has been working. And if not, if it hasn't, uh, how is the administration going to adjust? Well, um, our time is winding down here. I want to make sure we talk a little bit about the day after, um, which is tremendously complicated. We received over 400 audience submissions, audience questions here, uh, and I'd like to turn to some of those. A lot of them were about those day after questions. The Biden administration has said it wants uh, a role for um, a revitalized Palestinian authority running Gaza. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has basically said no. Um, uh, you know, we have one question from our audience. Anne Carlson from Idaho asks, where are the non-Hamas Palestinian leaders? Is there anyone ready to take over for Abbas? Is it too dangerous to step forward or are they being ignored by Western media? 
What, what do you think? I mean, it's, it's a very good question. I wish I had a, I wish I had a really good answer to it. I mean, I, I think both Israel and Palestinian are, are suffering acute crises in leadership. Uh, on the Israeli side, there's a f more formal mechanism to induce leadership changes. I think by the end of 2024, you'll probably see one. On the Palestinian side, it gets extremely complicated for so many reasons. You have a Palestinian authority that controls 40% of Gaza, excuse me, of the West Bank. Uh, it has zero credibility on the street. Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, now in the 18th or 19th year of the four-year term uh, at 88, has zero credibility. The PA's authoritarian structure, uh, the nepotism, the corruption, all of that has drained it of, of significance. Abbas canceled elections in 2021, uh, which I think provided a, a, a real moment of, of inflection, both for Hamas and for younger Palestinians. Uh, increasing his lost, increasingly has lost touch with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, succession, I, I don't think Pythia and reading the vest of coffee pomegranates or goat entrails could tell you right now uh, who would who or what would succeed Mahmoud Abbas. Um, and therein lies a huge problem. Now the Israelis have played a critically important role in weakening that Palestinian Authority in facilitating the fact that uh, Abbas has no, has no um, credibility or street cred, so to speak. Um, so it's a combination of internal dysfunction and Israeli policy that's created this crisis. If Hamas survives uh, in any meaningful way, then I think the uh, Palestinian national movement will remain what it has been, except in a, in a worse possible shape. It's like Noah's Ark. There are two of everything. Two constitutions, two sets of patrons, two sets of security services, two statelets, one in Gaza, one in 40% of the West Bank that uh, that uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority and Fatah, uh, Abbas's party controls. So again, I, I wouldn't um, insult the intelligence of anybody on this call to even venture a guess uh, as to what the new leadership structure on the Palestinian side would be. I will say this, it strikes me as the objective that the administration is pursuing, Palestinian governance for Gaza, makes obvious, tremendous sense. Whether or not how quickly a Palestinian authority revitalized, reformed, re-energized the, the new RPA, so to speak, um, it's going to take time. And it's going to depend in some respects on the transition phases that follow the changing nature of Israel's military operations in Gaza. And I think nobody, Michael, neither you nor me nor anyone in the administration, frankly, has a good sense uh, of where the Palestinians are headed uh, on the day after or the day after the day after. Um, we have about a minute left here. Maybe just one one quick last question um, about, you know, on, on, on that day after those day after issues. I'm curious your sense of what what role there are for um, you know Arab states uh, to either you know help rebuild, potentially help govern, help sustain a Palestinian governance of of Gaza after this conflict ends. Um, what what what's their role? In, in, I think it, in one minute, it, it can be a critically important role uh, as long as Gaza first is not Gaza only. I think the price for Arab and Arab state admission to this process is going to be some serious effort on the part of the 
on the part of the administration to tether what happens in Gaza to the pursuit of a broader political horizon. And therein lies a huge problem, Michael, for, for everybody, both driven by American poli politics, uh, driven by the uncertainty certainty of Israeli politics. I wonder, Michael, if I could just end up perhaps on a more hopeful note in 45 seconds, if I could. Yes, let's do it. You know, I, I, I was thinking the other day, I, I was in Jerusalem October 6, 1973, when Israel um, and Egypt, Egypt and Israel uh, entered the, uh, the October war. And I watched the traumatized society. And yet within six years, Egypt and Israel signed a full treaty of peace. Um, September 13th, 1993, 20 years later, I sat on the White House lawn watching Arafat, Plumin were being signed the Oslo Accords. In the first instance, in 73, trauma turned to hope. In the second instance, in 93, hope turns to trauma. And my conclusion from this is that the arc of history bends in ways that none of us, neither you nor me nor anyone, can predict. And frankly, we're in a long, dark tunnel. There's no question about it. But I think uh, it behooves, it, it mandates that, that all of us not give in to the forces of hopelessness and despair and try to do everything we can, not just hope, but try to do everything we can to try to see if we can bend that arc uh, in a more positive uh, and enlightened direction. All right, well, hope and bending the arc, we'll, we'll have to leave it there, um, but I'm glad that you, uh, you steered our conversation in that direction. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Aaron David Miller, we really appreciate your, your joining Washington Post Live. Thanks, thanks so much for this conversation today. And thanks, Michael, for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.